Welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. Together, we're going to explore lessons to help us live well. Let the learning begin. Before we jump into this incredible conversation all about our genes and epigenetics, I wanted to let you know that enrollments are now open for the next round of Energy by Design. Energy by Design is my game-changing program for educators that are ready to reclaim their spark. It's a space to connect, share, laugh, and learn with others that understand the demands of school life. In this unique 10-week program, I share the wellbeing skills and strategies that have helped countless educators to feel good, function well, and relate better. The program includes weekly videos and handouts, an exclusive podcast series with wellbeing experts and educators, and a weekly live Zoom coaching call. The live calls are a great way to connect with others and provide the accountability you need to take your well-being to the next level. The calls will be Thursday evenings at 7pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. Join now and make this term your best term yet. Go on, what have you got to lose? In this episode, I have the joy of chatting with neuroscientist and educator Dr. Jared Cooney-Harveth. Jared has conducted research and lectured at Harvard University Harvard Medical School, the University of Melbourne, and over 450 schools internationally. He currently serves as the Director of Learning Made Easy Global, a team dedicated to bringing the latest brain and behavioural research to teachers, students, and parents alike. Jared is the author of two best-selling books, Stop Talking, Start Influencing, and 12 Insights from Brain Science to Make Your Message Stick. In this conversation, we discuss... What is epigenetics? The common myths about our genetic potential, how our context influences our gene expression, and so much more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Jared Cooney-Harvest. Jared, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. Awesome to be here. I'm so excited about this conversation. I've got my water. I feel like I'm ready for a session about genes, how they work, what we don't know, what we want to know. Before we jump into that, I would love to know a little bit about your story. Yeah. So I was a a teacher originally, so back in the day. So teaching is still my passion. If we talk about helping human beings, it's it, that's where you get your natural source from. The more you work with students, the more you're just like, all I want to do is help students. Back when I was teaching the neuroscience, the brain stuff, that was the century of the brain, I think it was called. So that started to become super popular. So I figured, yeah, I'll just go back to school. I'll learn a little bit about the brain. That will help me kind of make better sense of my students so I can be a better teacher. And that was really only supposed to be, gosh, a year or two, but that ended up ballooning into about 15 years now I've been stuck in academia. What I've done, so in 15 years, what I do in that time is I've studied what's called the science of learning. Take any field that you can think of that has to do with learning at some level. Psychology, neuroscience, artificial intelligence, economics, you name it. What we do now is we pool all of that information together and we try and come up with kind of a framework of how learning works so that we can bring that back to teachers and students and say, hey, here's the good stuff, here's the nonsense. So really, I think the teaching has driven my desire to want to help people. And then the deeper I get into the science of learning stuff, (laughs) I, I think it's the same as anything. When you see behind the curtain of science and research, it's not as flash hot or important as everyone kind of makes it out to be. So I've, I've just got this really desire to, to shine light 
on the dark spot that is science so that everyone knows here's what's actually going on. So you don't have to take our word for it. You don't have to trust things that sound nonsense. And here's how you can kind of separate, I guess, ideology from truth. And so that's kind of where, where I sit now is, yeah, I'm just really interested in bringing science down off a pedestal back into the normal world where we can all deal with it again, rather than looking up to it as some magical edifice type of thing. Yes, that makes so much sense. And I know when I saw you present, I thought this is someone who gets it. They get the science, but they get we're human. Yeah. And sometimes what the science says and sometimes what we're experiencing, we need to translate this because we are not in a case study where humans having a human experience. And I love how you can bring the knowledge and the lived experience together into a way that really makes sense. And for people listening to this conversation today, they will get a taste of it. Your genius in making things make sense. And then also the energy to give it a try. Try this in your life. (laughs) Here's something fun to do. I always think whenever I have to teach stuff, maybe that's my superpower is I always teach things the way I wish I would have been taught that back in the day. Like the first time I ever heard about the brain, what do I wish I would have heard? First time I heard about genes, what do I wish someone would have told me? If I kind of always keep that in the back of my mind, that makes teaching a lot easier for me. When I'm talking to scientists, I can just weed through the noise and say, nobody cares about that. That statistic is irrelevant. Shut up about your T-tests. What are we actually talking? about here. It's good. Like scientists hate it. I I cannot tell you how many of my colleagues hate the way I teach because they're like, you're losing all the specificity of this, that, and this. I'm like, no, (laughs) that's for us. That is what we do in a lab. That is our job. The point of teaching science isn't to make them an expert like us. It's to help give them knowledge and understanding so they can use it in their life. If they want to be an expert like us, they can come do it with us for 10 years. That's about how long it's going to take you to kind of lock this stuff down so yeah i don't i'm they get mad but i'm gonna keep doing what i do and we get to learn which is so wonderful today we're going to be talking about genes and for anyone that has this moment of i can't even remember science at school i'm not science minded i didn't do biology take a deep breath we're going to walk through this together jared's got us covered (laughs) so what are genes oh all right get your pen and paper ready this is gonna get hard Genes are totally simple. Don't ever, don't ever fret about genes. I always kind of liken it like this. If you understand how books work, then you understand how genes and genetics work. So let's just start with the very basic story. So a book, you get a bunch of individual words, which on their own, they don't really do much. You combine those together into sentences. Each sentence you read is going to have its own specific meaning. Put a bunch of sentences together, so a bunch of different meanings together, and all of a sudden you're going to get a book. You're going to get a story, a beginning, a middle, and an end. This is how genes work. You get a bunch of little things called nucleotides. So these are just little chemicals that don't, on their own, they don't do much of anything. Put them together, and just like sentences, you build them together into genes. Each gene will code for a protein. So just like each sentence gives you a meaning, each gene gives you a protein, Put a bunch of proteins together, just like a book, you're going to build a plant or you're going to build an animal or you're going to build a person. So if you understand books, then you understand genes. A bunch of things come together. Each of those little segments, sentences, genes, builds a protein. Dozens and hundreds of thousands of proteins come together to build life. And that's it. And so a lot of people think protein is in, you know, the thing we eat. Kind of. Yeah, that's kind of a thing. Protein, just think about it as the building block of life. Everything in your body, every cell, every chemical is kind of going to be built of proteins. So just think of proteins as the building blocks, the Lego blocks that build us. And I think kind of a fun thing, here's how people dealt with it, is it's just like, same thing with a book. If you rearrange the words in a sentence, 
That sentence gets a different meaning. You get a different book. Same exact words. Like I got a sentence that says, granny, let's eat. Cool. That has a very specific meaning. We're going to build a book off of this. I just rearrange those same words into let's eat granny. Now I've got a totally different meaning and oh, I'm going to build a totally different book off of this. It's the same thing with genes. If you just rearrange the little nucleotides in there, that gene is going to pump out a different protein. So that's how we kind of end up with the same basic words in the English language can lead to millions of books. Same basic building blocks in genes can lead to millions of different kind of forms of life. So what do we think? How does that kind of make sense to you? How How's that feeling? That makes complete sense. And I love the idea of thinking about sentences because that's really simple when we think of a sentence and a sentence has meaning, just like our genes. The different sentences create different stories, different genes create different expressions. I'm with you. I'm following. I really like this. (laughs) When it comes to genes, what are the common myths out there? Biggest one, and this is the one that's started to really get me going down this avenue of going, the heck is actually going on here? So the way a book works is you've got X amount of sentences, which give you X amount of meanings, which give you your book. That's how we always assumed humans and the human body and animals would be. You're going to have a certain set of genes. Each gene is going to give you one protein. All those proteins are going to be required to build us. So let's just take human beings. So human beings, back in the day, scientists estimated how many genes must we have to build us, like the book of us. And they estimated we we probably have 100,000 different proteins in our body, which means we must have 100,000 different genes. Cool. We're super complex. Now think about it. Give me a very simple creature, like a little fly. They're less complex. They have fewer proteins. So maybe they only have, say, a thousand genes. And maybe a rabbit, it's a little more complex, will have 20,000 genes. So the more complex something is, the more proteins it'll need, the more genes it has. And that just sounds totally intuitive. Until you go looking at the genes and you realize, oh, this ain't the case at all. Cut to uh, 2001 when we finally cracked the human genome. So we mapped all the genes in the human body. And it turns out we didn't have 100,000. We didn't have 50,000. We didn't even have 25,000. We think we have 19,000 protein coding genes. That's it. All this complexity somehow comes out of 19,000 genes. And to put that into context, if you look at a, a nematode worm, so this is a little worm that lives in your stomach. It's microscopic. You can't even see it. Completely simple form of life. They have 20,000 protein coding genes. If you look at a lab rat, the things we do research with in mazes, they have 30,000. If you look at a banana... A banana has 37,000 protein coding genes in it, nearly twice as many as we do. So you got, you got an issue here. Either bananas are twice as complex as human beings are, or this whole one-to-one kind of concept doesn't make sense. Once I started learning that, that's when I'm like, oh, so where do we go from here? If it's not a one-to-one gene to outcome correspondence, like you have a gene for eye color, you have a gene for height, you have a gene for your nose, a gene for your... No, we don't have enough genes for that to be a case. So where researchers move from here, and let me, does that kind of make sense? I don't want to keep going if, if, if you think there's still uh, like a little niggle. So what I'm hearing is the myth is we have a gene for every particular thing. So gene yeah. for this, gene for that, where it turns out that that can't quite be true when you look at the number of genes we actually have, and then you look at the number of genes a banana has. Yeah. And so, the, and I think that's a good thing. And I think a lot of people have kind of been coming to terms with that, that cool, you don't have a gene for weight. There is no gene for cancer. It's just not how genes work. So what most people did is they moved into, and this is where the research for the last about 20 years has kind of moved into what's called 
polygenetics. So cool, there's not a gene for something. There's a set of genes that kind of build something. So instead of having one gene for eye color, maybe there's say three genes that interact and through their proteins together, they'll build your eye color. And then maybe there's six genes that interact together to give you height. And the only reason this would work is if things overlap. So let's say I have three genes for eye color. Maybe two of those genes also work to code for height. And maybe six of those genes also work to code for my weight. So what you do is you get kind of clusters of genes where the same gene can feed into multiple different outcomes. And so this is what most people kind of where they sit now. They say, yeah, so you've got, let's say, five genes for eye color, 10 genes for height. Everything is polygenetic. And that all sounds and feels real good until you start looking for the genes. And here's what we find. If you take a look at something like just eye color, the last time we looked for eye color, and this wasn't even a major study, we found instead of three genes, there were 60 genes involved with eye color. And together, they only could explain about 45% of your eye color. So there's got to be a ton more out there that we're just missing. Take it to height. Instead of there being five or 10 genes for height, last time we counted, there were 490 genes related to height. And that only explains 16% of your height. So there's a ton more out there. And once we, and we're just talking about simple things like physical characteristics. Once you go into cognition, oh, it gets ugly. So take something like uh, intelligence. Last time we looked for intelligence genes, we found 1,200 different genes that influenced it. And that accounted for 4.5% of intelligence differences. So even if you extrapolate that, that means we would need more than 19,000 genes to account for all of intelligence if genes worked the way we think they do. So this once we moved from there's one gene to everything, we then moved into there are dozens of genes that kind of code for everything. And now we've reached the latest stage. And in the last couple of years, we've reached a stage called omnigenics. And I'm not, if you don't believe me, go look this up. This comes straight out of Stanford. This is real stuff where now geneticists are accepting the fact that every single gene in your body will impact every single trait you have. You can no longer say, here's the group of genes that give me eye color because literally every gene will somehow impact your eye color. Now think about how absurd this means. So we've got this huge genetic picture. We've been talking about genes for a century, how they're kind of everything we need to know. Once we know genes, we're gonna know everything. Then you go to 2001 when we finally get all the genes. And did you notice, by the way, <laughs> I wish I had some of the quotes, I don't. When we finally broke the genes, we got all the human genome mapped. Everyone was saying, this is it, man. We've cured medicine. We're going to cure every disease. This is going to make personalized medicine. This is going to make personalized education. We have solved humanity. Since that time, it's been 20 years, how many diseases do you think have been cured or even addressed using the human genome? Congratulations, you can count it on no hands because the answer is zero. We didn't get any of the answers because now we realize every gene is important for everything. So the next time you hear a researcher coming out with data that says, oh, we found a gene linked to cancer or to obesity or to this, they could literally point to any gene they want to and they're going to be correct because at some level, they're all playing a part. We can no longer break up traits who we are into little discrete units in our body. It just doesn't seem to work that way. Okay, where what are you thinking now? Once you hear about omnigenetics... What do you think, Meg? Like, what, what does that kind of start to put in your head? Oh, I started laughing because I was thinking about those scientists sort of thinking, if I crack this code, I'm set. Life is sorted. And how many of us in our own life think, if I get here, 
happy days. Like life is good. I'll be able to just work out everything. Everything will make sense. And it's almost like the universe is laughing at us and reminding us that nothing is as simple as we think it is. And everything is always in communication. There's always an interplay. We all impact each other. Our choices matter. Our environment matters. There's so much more happening and we can't just put it down to our individual parts. I often think of a cake. A cake is not just flour, eggs, and a bit of what else do you put in a cake? What else is in a cake? Sugar? Baking powder or something. <laughs> you put it in the oven and it creates something else. And I think this is really exciting. And I also think it's really challenging for us to get our heads around the fact that it's not just simple one for one, if that's what we've always believed. And to step into this new idea of, hey, it all matters. Everything is interactive. People say, how could that be possible? And if you think about it like this, the way to kind of, and this is totally wrong, and you'll see why in a second, but you can think of genes kind of like some of them will be what we call direct genes, some will be indirect. So like right now, we're making this podcast. So right, you and I are making direct choices as to what we're going to say, what pace we're going to use, how we're going to say it, what tone. So it sounds like we're creating this podcast. But behind us are dozens of people that we interact with every day. We've got our parents, we've got our wives, our kids, we've got uh, even our barista, my Uber driver. All of these people have indirectly influenced how I'm going to talk to you right now. So for instance, if, if my Uber driver was late and I got signed on here just five minutes late, I would be speaking faster or cutting some things out. So even though they're not directly making decisions on what we're saying, they have indirectly influenced everything coming out of our mouths. Now, keep regressing. Behind them are dozens and dozens of other people who have influenced them, who have influenced us. You keep regressing. You get to a point where you realize the people listening to this podcast, whoever is listening to this right now, there is every chance in the world that you have somehow, even if it's insignificantly, changed or impacted this conversation as it's happening right now. And so that's how we think genes work, is you might have a core group that do something directly, but they're always talking to and being influenced by the other 18,000 genes doing things in the background. And when you add it up, it looks like we're doing the bulk of the work, but if you were able to actually sort it out, it would turn out you and I might only impact 17% of this entire podcast. The other 83% can be explained by all the small infinitesimal impacts everyone else has had on us. So this is the reason I say it doesn't really make sense with genes is the more we think about this, the less we believe you can ever say there's a core set of genes because the non-core set of genes almost certainly have a bigger impact than the core set of genes do. And they're, But their impacts are so small. Collectively, they're massive, but individually, they're so small, we'll never be able to suss out what they're actually doing. Meaning, in a very real sense, we'll never figure out exactly how genes are working to make anything because it's too interactive. It's too small, too interactive, and we're just never going to wrap our head around the whole thing. We can get glimpses, we can get chunks, but we'll never get the whole picture. The visual that's coming to my mind is a teacher standing in the classroom and what you see in your students, we will never know. We only get glimpses of what's happening Mm -hmm. in the corridors, in the locker rooms, at home, on computers. We know certain bits, but there's a whole lot of stuff that's happening that we'll never be able to pull down. That is an awesome connection. And But we'll just talk chalk it up to exactly what we see. You're in my class. The 10 minutes I see you today, I'm going to assume everything you're doing has to do with this 10-minute interaction. Nope. It almost has nothing to do with that interaction. Even what you're saying to the kid, how you're reading into it, will be influenced by if you got in a fight with your partner before you came to work, you're going to read that kid differently. 
And you're still going to think, no, this is objective. No, it ain't. (laughs) It's too interactive. (laughs) Do you want to get a little crazier? Yeah, I'm up for it. Okay. So just when we think, okay, we've, we've at least gotten to this point where every gene impacts every trait. We'll never figure it out, but genes are still the driving factor. Like a book, genes are still, sentences create a book, genes create us. So even if we won't ever completely understand the genetic story, at least we can hang our hat on the fact that, boom, they're building us. That's our blueprint. Oh, no, that's not how this works at all. So... <laughs> This entire discussion thus far has hinged on one concept. Each gene codes for one protein, just like each sentence has one meaning, right? Grandma, let's eat. There's one thing I'm going to think of. But you all know in writing, every sentence can have multiple interpretations. The same exact set of words in the same exact order, depending on the context, can give you very different meanings. If I say something like, hey, let's go, if I'm at a sports game then what I'm doing when I say, hey, let's go, is I'm rooting on my team. The meaning is I'm cheering for a certain group of people. If I'm trying to get into the car with a group of kids, hey, let's go means I'm trying to corral or wrangle a bunch of people. Same words, completely different meanings based on context. At least we don't have to worry about that with genes. One gene, one protein. Yay. Turns out, welcome to the wonderful world of epigenetics. So everyone has probably heard this concept before, epigenetics. Simply put, what it means is a gene on its own will do nothing. If you have a bowl full of genes in front of you, you're not going to magically grow a plant. You're just going to have a bowl full of genes. Genes require some sort of input, some sort of communication from the environment to direct them so that they know what to do. And in case you think I'm being flippant, when you were first conceived, when your parents' egg and sperm came together and your first set of genes were together in one giant egg, those genes did nothing. They do absolutely nothing. What happens in that first egg is chemicals from your mother start feeding in and those chemicals from your mother start dividing. Your first four or five egg cell divisions, your genes weren't even doing a thing. It was all being run from the outside in. Once you've got enough baby cells, so let's say you've got, say, 16 cells in this little blastocyst, then new chemicals come in from your mother and they start turning genes on. So genes, in order to be activated to know what to do, require signals from the environment. Without those signals, no gene does a thing. So for a long time, we thought epigenetics could just essentially turn on or off genes. Chemicals will flood in, turn on a a certain set of genes or upregulate them, and that gene will pump out more of a protein or it can downregulate, turn off that gene. It will pump out less of that protein, but we're still stuck with one gene equals one protein. Yes, the environment determines which genes get turned on and off, but we still got a one-to-one. So, so long as we know enough about the environment, we can still solve this problem. No, we now know epigenetics goes beyond simply turning on and off genes. The chemical messengers from the environment attaching themselves to genes can also change what protein that gene sends out. And when I say change it, I don't mean kind of change it. I mean, significantly change it to the point where we now believe 95% of human genes can pump out and do pump out multiple completely different proteins. So just as kind of a a couple of fun extreme examples, and this one will go to a a, a fly. So there's one gene in fruit flies called DSCAM, which depending on the environment it sits in, will pump out any one of 38,000 different genes, each of which does something totally different in the fly. One gene, 
38,000 proteins. Closer to home, in humans, we have a gene called BCLX. And depending on the environment, again, that it's whatever input it's getting from the world, it will either make a protein that causes a cell to kill itself, or it will make a protein that causes a cell to protect itself against death. So you get life and death from the exact same gene based exclusively on what environment that gene, that cell, finds itself in. So now, not only have we gotten to omnigenics, where every gene matters, we've now reached epigenetics, where unless we know what environment a gene is in, we can't even predict what the heck it's going to do. So when you start thinking about this concept of a nature versus nurture, you start to see (laughs) without nurture, there is no nature. And I think you can make the counter argument without nature, without cells, there is nothing to do. If you didn't have genes, you wouldn't be alive. So this doesn't mean genes are unimportant. But without an environment, without nurture, your genes don't do anything. You wouldn't exist. They would just sit there. So welcome to the new world order of epigenetics. Oh, it's so fascinating. My level of knowledge was genes, either you can amplify them, turn them up, or mute them, turn them down really interesting to go into this level think about not just up and down literally change them the whole experience changes and I love that idea of context is king and in everything that I do I really think context matters so much I can't think of an example where it doesn't matter if you're with your children at home, if you're in the classroom, if you're having a meeting with the principal, if you're walking across the street and the lollipop man talks to you, like the context does change us. And so it makes sense that it changes the way that we express our genes. And this is, I I think you're spot on is one of the, and this is when I say I want to shine a light, light on the dark corners of science. This is one of those good examples is scientific research tries to eliminate context as much as possible. We eliminate variables so we can focus in on one contextless thing at a time. And that's really cool. That reductionism is a very cool way of thinking, but it ain't the only way of thinking. And it ain't even a good, like the right way of thinking. Because once you start to recognize, yeah, all the answers we came up with in labs that said, once we get the genes, we'll solve anything. Once we figure this out, we'll solve everything. Once we take a look at neurons, we'll solve the brain. You start to realize Once you strip context away, you've eliminated the very thing you're trying to explain. When you eliminate the brain from a context and look at it in a Petri dish, you're no longer looking at the brain. You're looking at cells in a dish. It's no longer the same. So like when I want to look at you as a person, but I take you in a quiet lab and I put you with no... Uh, no children, no sound. Yep. No, no lights. And you got to press a button for 30 minutes. I'm not actually looking at you anymore. I'm looking at the biological manifestation of your fingertip. That's it. You cannot separate anything from context. And when you do, you end up with nothing. And when you bring context back in, you start to realize how many arguments are from ideology rather than from truth in the sense that Yes, I can make genetic arguments left and right. Your genes make you tall. Your genes make your eyes brown. Of course they do. Your genes do everything. They're involved in everything. But that argument, most people use it as an ideological argument to say you don't exist. But no, we totally do exist. It's just when you reduce me to nothing but genes, yeah, you're going to find answers. But those answers don't reflect me as a human being over here. Once you put me back in context, I can push back on those very same genes and give you blue eyes. I can push back on those exact same genes and give you a different height. Think about it like this. Uh, South Korean females. In the last hundred years, their height has changed by eight and a half inches. So um, that would be like the the you and I meeting our great grandmothers. And we're now eight and a half inches tall of them on average. 
Yet there's no way in heck genes have changed in three generations that much. That's simply not how genes work. So none of that height difference, that change, came from genetics. It came from the interaction of the environment upon genetics. And I think this is one of the most powerful things you can learn. Genes aren't powerful because they're fixed, because they come into this world with a very clear idea of what they need to build. Genes are powerful because they're so dang adaptive, because they come into this world ready to interact with and adjust to the environmental demands they find themselves in. Your genes didn't, they're not cool because they made you. Your genes are cool because they allowed you to emerge from the process of whatever environment you happen to be in. And as food gets better, as healthcare gets better, the same exact genes make you taller. Why? Because they say we can handle more of this stuff. And when there is no food and things get really bad, the same exact genes, you don't need to wait for 10, 20 generations to somehow get a mutation. Nope. The same genes can say, don't worry about it. We'll pump out different proteins. We'll make you shorter and we'll contain your energy. So you, you get less food. That's the power of genes. They're wildly adaptive. And now you get to start asking the question, adaptive to what? And we start to see, of course, to the environment, right? In, in the sense that <laughs> take nature and nurture, the two, you cannot separate the two. They're always going to be responding and adapting to each other. My gene's going to pump out a new protein, which is going to change the environment, which is going to feed back in, change that gene, feed back out. You get this feedback loop between the environment and your genes. So in a very real sense, every action you've ever undertaken has imprinted itself on your genes somewhere. That's how this system works. That's not a game anymore. That That's the juice of this whole thing. But more importantly, it doesn't just require actions. We're now starting to learn, like if you think about it, the nature-nurture debate eliminates one very important variable. And that variable is you. In the debate of nature versus nurture, it still appears as though you don't exist, as though you're just this block of clay being molded alternately by your genes and then by the world you find yourself in. And at no point are you ever required in that process. But of course, you are required in that process. As human beings, we have choice. We have agency. And now we start to see your thoughts, your own choices start to change your genetic expression as well. So you've got now this beautiful triumvirate of genes, nature, and you. And all of us now play together to emerge, to create, to build what works best for us in this moment. And I just think that is ridiculously more empowering than saying, oh, you got the genes for brown eyes. No, you don't. Nobody does or everyone does. It doesn't matter. What are we playing with? What is the bigger picture that led to that? You're listening to the School of Wellbeing podcast with Meg Durham. To learn how I can help you thrive, visit openmindeducation.com. There you will find out about Thrive by Design, my workplace wellbeing program, Energy by Design, my game-changing program for educators, and Impact by Design, helping student leaders have an impact in their school community. Now let's get back to my conversation with Dr. Jared Cooney-Harbar. I am cheering on the inside because this is a crux of what I hope to share with people, that we have an impact yeah. in our lives, that our daily choices matter. I teach the battery five questions we need to ask ourselves. How are we sleeping? How are we moving? How are we eating? How are we resting? How are we are connecting with others? And this really matters because if we're not doing these things, we can't make choices. We can't be out there doing different things. Yeah. and 
I feel like a completely different entity, a different human if I'm flat and I haven't been taking care of those things versus when I do make those distinct, deliberate choices consistently, how much more I can show up in the world. And this is what I really want listeners to hear is that your choices matter. Don't have that story of, oh, I'm just this way. This is my genes. This is what I've got. I can't do anything about it. We can and we need to. Our genes are waiting for it. That's their entire job. It's like the brain. If you do nothing, your brain will start to die away. Like that's when people retire at 65, 70 and they do a lot less, their brain starts to deteriorate. And we always thought that was biological. And then we realized, no, that's your brain's biology saying, if you're not going to use me, I ain't going to waste energy. I'll see you later. Genes are the same thing. If you do nothing, they will just do the bare minimum. They will keep you alive and ain't nothing going to change. They are waiting. They are primed to adapt. That's what they do. So the more you do, the more they're like, cool, we're going to do our job. As long as you're using me, we're going to keep changing. We're going to keep growing. We're going to keep building. Now, a lot of people will say, okay, so who am I? So if I can make these choices, aren't I just my brain or aren't I just my genes or aren't I just this interaction? I'll I'll breeze through this because this can be a whole thing in itself. There's a process called emergence, which says when individual units come together, they'll interact in a way that leads to novel outcomes that are not predictable in any of the parts themselves. So as a simple example, take a cell, put a bunch of cells next to each other, and you build what's called a tissue. Now, a tissue can trap water, has permeability, it can hold on to chemicals. No cell can do this. Because that's not in any cell, this new property emerges only through the interaction of all the cells. And importantly, it is a very real property. It exists. You can't reduce it and say, oh, it's just an epiphenomenon. It doesn't really exist. That's just just a cell. No, it actually fully exists. We can map it. We can measure it. We can see it happening every day. Go back and I'll give, give you an easier example. Think of cars. If you have a car engine and I say, just think of a car engine and I ask you, what's the top speed of that car engine? Most of you will realize this, the answer is nothing. A car engine on its own doesn't give you any speed. You could know every nut, every bolt. It doesn't exist in an engine. Speed doesn't exist in the wheels. Speed doesn't exist in the axle. It doesn't exist in the radio. It doesn't exist in the antenna. Speed emerges when all of these parts interact. And now it emerges as a new property. And importantly, speed is a real property that can feed back and change the car. Based on speed, the different parts are going to work differently. So most science accepts emergence in all fields where they'll go, yeah, you're right. Speed does exist. Permeability of a tissue does exist. They maintain this concept right up until you get to us, until you get into humans. It's at that point where they go, oh no, that doesn't exist. That's just an epiphenomenon. Nonsense. If speed exists when a bunch of different car parts come together and permeability exists when a bunch of different cells come together, then that means when a bunch of different organs and organ systems come together and we emerge, we are real. We are as real as speed. We are as real as anything else. And just like speed and permeability can feed back and change their parts, so too can we feed back and change our parts. So when I say you have a say in this system, I'm not talking to a little nugget in your brain. I'm talking about the you that emerges through the interaction of all the different parts in your body. You are no more in your brain than you are in your heart, than you are in your toe, than you are in your lung, than you are in your knee. You're of all of this stuff, but you're not in any of it. You emerge from it all and you can feed back and change how it works. So when I say you are an integral part in this entire decision, that's who I'm talking to, the emergent property that comes out. 
And it's funny, you'll notice scientists only ignore it at that one moment. And not all scientists, clearly, just the really hardcore, staunch, atheistic ones that write books and everyone says, oh, that must be true. So think about it. So these people will acknowledge that thinking exists when a brain, when a bunch of cells in the brain come together. They won't acknowledge that you exist at the next level when all your organs come together. But then they'll go on to acknowledge that something like culture truly does exist outside of any individual as an emergent property when we all get together. They'll say, yeah, no human being controls a culture, yet it is still a thing there that influences us. So everything beneath us they believe in, everything above us they believe in, but as soon as you hit us, that's when they go, oh no, there is no you. There is no free will. There is no choice. Nonsense. If there's speed in a car, there's free will in humans. Either emergence is real or it isn't. And if you're going to accept it in some cases, you got to accept it in all them cases. So when we say you're important, That's the you we're talking about. Yeah. And I'm wondering why the scientists wouldn't want to lean into this emergence idea for humans. And I'm wondering because it's so complex and they can't just separate into its tidy, nice little pieces, much harder to deal with the mess and the interplay that you can't just put into tiny little sections. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's it. Science has historically been reductionist that so long as we build down, we can get all the building blocks and that should explain everything above it. And you see emergence comes along and says, it just doesn't work. Once you reduce, you eliminate the thing you were hoping to explain. So you can get a glimpse at what the pieces are, but that'll never give you a sense. In a real sense, the whole becomes more than the sum of its parts. So you can tell me the sum of its parts, but you'll never be able to tell me the whole. And for the most part, we accept that. That's why geneticists work with the people who do like medicine, socialized medicine and, and um, uh, track diseases around the world, because they know you've got to explain it from multiple angles. The genes aren't enough to explain the social manifestation of it. Yet the social manifestation is very real. It's just for some reason that it becomes really tricky when it comes to us that people want to say, no, you don't exist. Uh, you don't have a choice. And I just, that's always just done my head. And it's like, your very argument falls upon itself when you acknowledge some things and just ignore that. But it's, it's interesting. I can, I'll give you an example. So this leads to some pretty interesting stuff is if you're not in your brain, we will never crack consciousness in the brain because it's not in the brain. It is of the interaction of everything. So the brain is a part of it, but it's not in there. That's why we've never found it. If you emerge from all of this, then that means you will change when any part of this changes. And that is exactly what we see. Now, this is some of this is going to be somewhat controversial just because a lot of people don't want to look into it, and that's fine. But let's just start with animals. <laughs> if we do a fecal transplant, which is exactly what it sounds like, we just remove poop from one mouse and put it into another mouse's stomach <laughs> or bowel, excuse me. By switching fecal matter, we can completely switch the personalities of mice. The, the once shy mouse will act totally crazy. The crazy mouse will act shy based purely on whether or not they got each other's poop. We didn't change their heart. We didn't change their brain. We didn't. All we did was change one of the pieces in the system, and that fed up to change the emergent property. It's the same thing with humans. I think something in the last count, it was something like 37% of people who have gotten um, a significant organ replacement have come out with personality changes that should have been unrelated to the surgery. Like you'd expect, if you need a heart transplant, you're going to get personality changes afterwards. You're probably going to be less depressed when you after the surgery. You're going to be happier. You're going to be more lust for life. So there are certain changes we would expect purely from context. But there are some changes we wouldn't expect, like taste in food, taste in music, taste in clothing, uh, risk-taking behaviors. None of these things should change because you got a new lung or a new heart. Yet in a lot of cases, it 
does. So is this a glimpse at the concept of change one of the pieces? We didn't change your brain. We didn't change your genes. We just put a different piece in the puzzle and the emergent us kind of shifts with it. One of the craziest examples I've ever seen of this, and this is probably the most controversial one, in para and quadriplegics. So you can see why it's going to get controversial, but I think it's actually very interesting. For a long time, we've seen when people lose sensation in either their legs or in their arms and their legs, over the next several years, their emotional responses start to change quite significantly. They still have emotions. It's just for the most part, a lot of them start to become more normalized. I don't want to say dampened. They just become less heightened, less reactive. They're, they're still there. They're just, they don't get as happy, as angry, as disgusted as, as they used to get. And now we're starting to think that's because emotions, interaction, it's an emergent property. If you change the body, if you cut off signals from context of your body so that your brain doesn't know what the heck is going on down there, it will change the manifest you. You will be less responsive to certain things. You will be less happy, less sad to certain things. So again, they still have the emotions, but it's just another example of you are an emergent property. We haven't changed your brain. When you, if you get a spinal injury and you become a quadriplegic, your brain is exactly the same. It's just we're changing the interaction of the network of the entire system. And that's feeding back and changing the emergent you. So this means you are your genes. You are your cells. You are your tissues. You are your organs. You are your systems, but you're not in any of it. You emerge from it and you can feed back and change how it all works. So kind of a huge topic, but once you start to wrap your head around emergence, that's where responsibility and agency really comes to the fore. And I think this is where we need to be as a society. We need to be thinking about responsibility, ownership, accountability for our health, doing what we can to feel as good as we can to function the best we can so we can then look to some of the really challenging things that we're facing. We're facing big issues as a community and how can we face them if we're not feeling good, if we're not functioning well? And this is so important that we change this narrative. We've got autonomy. We've got agency. There are things we can do. So how can we start to regulate our genes? There's been a lot of conversation around neuroplasticity. That's a big topic. Everybody knows that now. Everyone listening to this podcast will have heard the term neuroplasticity. Now epigenetics, we're starting to hear that more, and gene regulation. So the way that I understand gene regulation is a little bit like neuroplasticity. There's an adaptive part here. So how can we leverage our genes? How can we lean into this adaptability, this gene regulation? You're doing it so long as you're leaning into neuroplasticity, you're leaning into epigenetics. It's it's your choices, it's your thoughts, it's your action. There's not one specific, like for a long time with plasticity, we used to think it only happened under certain circumstances. If you work hard enough, you can change your brain. Then we realize, no, it's happening all the time. Every time you blink, every time you breathe, every time you change your body in your chair, your brain is physically changing itself. So that's not cute. That is literally how it works. It's the same thing with genes. We're now, and I guarantee you in the next 10 years, that's where we're going to get is epigenetics. It's not like something that if you, if you just meditate hard enough, you can change it. Literally every step you take will be changing your gene expression. It's always on. So where this starts, when it comes to leverage, this is where you just start to say, what do you hope to build? What is the kind of person that you hope to emerge from this system? And then you start doing things aligned with that. You start living in alignment with that goal. Um, My mom always used to say when we were growing up, she said, You'll become what you think about 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and you'll become who you hang out with 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I think that's very true, is the more you think about 
let's just be simple. Let's say math. If you want to be good at math, start thinking about it constantly. Think about it in the shower. Think about it when you're walking. Think about this. And all that thinking is going to feed back and it's going to change your genes, going to change your brain, going to make numeracy easier for you. It's going to become part and parcel of what you do. And if you want to not get good at math, just stop thinking about it, I guess. I, I don't know what the... And then it's the same thing with context is who do you want to hang out with? Do you want to be with healthy? Hang out with healthy people. Do you want to be athletic? Hang out with athletic people. The more we surround ourselves in a context that forces us to think in a certain way and act in a certain way, that's going to feed back and change our genes in the directed way we want it to. But it's worth remembering that it's epigenetics and plasticity are always on. So if you think and do bad things, yeah, your body and brain are going to go in the bad direction. It doesn't care. There is no good, bad, right, wrong, off, on for your brain or your genes. All they care about is that they're alive. So long as they're still kicking, they don't care. You start smoking, it'll adapt to make that normal for you. You do heroin, it'll adapt to make that normal for you. You work out, it'll adapt to make that normal for you. So this is where we see whatever choice, and I don't want to drive that for anyone, but whatever outcome you hope to get, just start living that. And and maybe that's the fake it till you make it that everyone talks about on the internet, possibly. Maybe faking it is the thing that's driving back that's going to make you that. I'm, I got no real problem with that. So it's just pick your outcomes, set your goals, and then start setting your context accordingly. I think that's the best way to leverage all of this because there's no turning it off, unfortunately. I love that idea of leveraging your context and thinking about, is my context serving me? And is that helping me move towards the emergent property that I want in the future? So thinking about our house, thinking about our classrooms, our staff rooms, everywhere that we are. And I've got a concrete example for you. I remember when we were living on a property in rural New South Wales and I would go for a run each morning and I would never see another human. It just would not happen. There's no way where I was running around the same paddocks that I would ever see a human. And so I remember thinking to myself, I have to remember that there are other people out in the world running. It's not just me. I know it feels like just me running around this dusty paddock, but it's not just me. And now moving to Geelong, when I'm out exercising, yeah. there's always someone else out. And it feels so much better to be like, hi, how are you going? Because the context is conducive to exercise. So we really need to think about this context piece and how it can leverage us towards the behaviors that we want to embody every single day. Yeah, there's a lot to be said for self-control, self-agency. That's happening all the time. Are you willing to pray or meditate before you go to bed? Are you willing to turn off the earphones when you go for a walk and listen to nature? So there's a lot of choices we can make, but there's a ton of context things we can make just by surrounding our, putting ourselves in a better context can help us out significantly. Take, and we see this kind of research a lot, take underperforming kids, put them in a high performing institution. They all step up. Well, some of them will drop out, but <laughs> just because that's their reaction to it. But for the most part, they will step up. Why? Because the context demands it of them. Take a bunch of high performing kids, put them in a low performing environment. They will step down. I think this is a good example of genes, all of it coming together. There are two strains of mice we raise. Well, there's dozens, but two particular in labs. One we call maize bright, one we call maize dull. And exactly as you'd think, for 60, 70 generations, the bright ones have been raised to be good at maize running. Dull ones are bad at it. And when they you put them against each other, it's exactly what you think. Good ones are good, bad ones are bad. Change context. Put the really good maize runners into a really bad environment like just a cage where they have nothing to do. All they have is water and food, no toys, no other animals. And over time, they will start to run as slow as the bad maze runners. Give me the slow ones, put them in an enriched environment where they get to play with other rats and they have toys and they get to kind of experience life. 
they start to learn just as fast as the good maze runners. Nothing about this changed their specific genes, but by changing the context they lived in, this fed back, changed their genetic expression, and made the dumb smart and the smart dumb. It just completely flip-flopped without ever having to actually change the genes because our genes are constantly adapting. So what's our context we're putting ourselves in and how can we use that to kind of drive the outcomes we want? I just love this. I love so much about this. I love the idea of context. And I think that's where I've had so many challenges along the journey when it comes to well-being. because schools come to me and say, I want it right. I want the right thing, right times. There's no such thing as right. We're yeah. dealing with a moving target. The context is constantly changing. We need to try, try again, adapt, take action, pull back. There's no such thing as right because yeah. every context is so different. I've seen things that have incredible results in one school and another school, the kids just laugh at it as if I'm going to do that, miss. Like that is a joke. Like who do you think I am? I've got other things in my life to think about. So thinking about context and to wrap up this incredible conversation, Jared, I'd love to invite you to complete four sentences. Are you up for it? Yeah, hit me. What do we got? I am inspired by. Oh, goodness gracious. Um. <laughs> I am inspired by Italy. I know that sounds crazy. <laughs> okay, I'll, 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 let me explain this just a second. I'm inspired by Italians who live their life totally devoid of globalization and they don't give a rat's patootie. They still do the same traditional methods their parents taught them and they don't care. There's something so refreshing. I think I've lived the whole first part of my life in this globalized world thinking success is when everyone knows what you're doing, when you've changed the axis of the world. And now I'm starting to realize, no, success is a community. Success is when you find a thought to be and you make you change the axis of your town or you change the axis of the little village you live in. And that's what I'm hoping for my kids. So that's why I say Italy inspires me. There's a lot of that that still exists there where they don't care to be world famous pop stars. They're pop stars in their country. They don't need to change all of agriculture. They did better on their farm and made everyone around them happy. To me, that's that's life. That's where I need to get better in my life. So sp speaking of context, guess where I'm trying to move? Where? Oh, to Italy. I am. I am. Boom. I'm working on my citizenship. I, I want to, I've realized if I stay in a digital kind of Western context, I'll never figure it out. So I'm going to force myself off the grid for a couple of years somewhere in Italy to try and to try and build, let this new me emerge by surrounding myself by the things that I really want to do. Oh, I am so excited to hear about that. <laughs> and I'm hoping there's a book in that because I think that is so incredible. If I do it right, I'll never write again. No one will ever hear. If it works, I will just continue to do my little whatever I do in that niche and I'll never complain. Fantastic. I'm inspired by that too. Uh, when life feels hard. <laughs> I bitch and moan. Uh, <laughs> I, say, I say a lot of swear words and my wife has to put up with me complaining, but I never take it personally. It always goes away. So I allow myself to kind of act act in, like a bit of a butthead sometimes, but I never take it personally. An underrated skill is? <sighs> Skiing? <laughs> no, I don't know. Um, that's probably a horrible answer. An underrated skill is levity, <laughs> is not taking anything too seriously. I, there's, I, I think we're losing that ability to laugh at ourselves a little bit too much. So I think that's a skill we need to get back is the ability to not take ourselves so dang seriously. And I am looking forward to moving to Italy.
<laughs> That's my future. One of these days. I'm looking forward to that. Before Italy, so let me give you a better answer. Before Italy, we're moving to, and this might help some of your listeners. So my wife and I, we've struggled um, with pregnancy for about six years now. And so we're moving to the US. There's a clinic there that specializes in our issues. So we're going to go give it the college try. We're going to put everything into it and move over there sight unseen and just try and make this work. So I'm actually really looking forward to that. And for any listeners who have had their own struggles with miscarriages and stuff, just know you're not alone. For whatever reason, as we go through this, the more people I talk to, the more normal it is. Like the story, even my brother's like, oh yeah, we've had miscarriages. Like you never told me about this. For some reason, we just don't talk about it. So right now, for whatever reason, pregnancy is hard. And so if some of you out there are struggling, just know I'm in the same boat as you and we're just trying our best. And I'm looking forward to, to giving that next thing ago see if that works out oh thank you so much for sharing and yes it's another one of those topics that we need to shine more light on because it's a human experience and people feel like they're failing or what's wrong but it's not that we need to think beyond that you want to hear something weird um so the more research i've been doing into this and i'm sure maybe your listeners already know this but so there's been definitely issues going on A lot of people, once you start getting miscarriages and stuff, we look at the woman's womb and we look at stuff. There's a lot of issues going on with male sperm right now to the point where in Western countries, but in Western countries only, our sperm count is about 50% less than what it was in our grandparents. We've dropped half of our sperm count in less than 50 years. That's like, I don't, as the mathematician in me says, that's scary. That is absurdly scary. And we don't know why. If you go to to non-Western countries, like go to countries in Africa and stuff, they're still fine. So there's something we are doing that is clearly feeding back in harming our rep- reproduction in some way that we don't get. And uh, I, we don't know what it is. I, I, I've got my theories. I've got my pet projects, but I don't know. So if you're struggling, just know, yeah, that's, I have a feeling that's going to be a massive thing in our Western world in the next couple of, of decades. And I don't know how it stops. I don't know what's causing it. Because if it's dropped 1% a year, every year for 50 years, who's to say it's going to stop? I mean, how low does this go? Does it plateau eventually? Or do we just keep dropping to her at 1%? In which case, what do we do? So, I don't know. So- You've given me even more things to think about. So incredible. So much we can talk about. Thank you so much for generously giving up your time and being a guest on the School of Wellbeing podcast. I really appreciate it. No, thank you. And thank you all for listening. How incredible is Jared? The way he can translate complex scientific research with such energy and enthusiasm is a skill. And I hope this conversation has inspired you to take more courageous action in your life. To learn more about Jared, visit his fascinating YouTube channel where he regularly shares the latest brain and behavioral science in a fun and entertaining way for all ages. Before you go, I'd like to invite you to stop and take a moment to think about the two following questions. From this conversation, what is one thing you want to remember? What is your pearl? Number two, what is one action you can take in the next 24 hours to support your well-being? If you're interested in participating in Energy by Design, my game-changing program for educators, this is your time. If you've been flirting with it, thinking about it, sign up now before enrollments close. To find out what I'm working on, announcements, and everything I'm currently loving, including books, podcasts, and shows, subscribe to my Thought of the Week newsletter. To support the show, please rate and review on iTunes and Spotify and share with your family, friends, and colleagues. Thank you for listening to the School of Wellbeing podcast. All the links from this episode will be in the show notes.